Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The world's best athletes are gathering in Japan this week, ready to display their strength, speed, skill and endurance at the 32nd Summer Olympic Games. But as with many previous Olympic Games, we've already started to see headlines revealing some athletes testing positive for banned performance-enhancing drugs. Russia won't be at the Games at all as part of the ongoing fallout from an enormous state-sponsored doping programme first uncovered in 2015. So how big a problem is doping? What can be done about it? And how much should you trust what you're about to see at Tokyo? I'm Tim Cross, and this is Babbage, the Economist Science and Technology podcast. On today's show, we'll explore the science of doping in sport. A former Olympian explains the effect of drugs on athletes' performance. You can take a very average female athlete and turn them into a world champion, a world beast, a world record holder, and many of those world records stood for a long time. What would happen to athletes if all doping restrictions were removed? There would be massive medical issues as yet unseen because anti-doping has kept a lid on them. But there's no doubt that if, if that lid was removed, athletes would dope to the point of potential harm. And when the stakes are so high, will there always be some number of athletes who choose not to play fair? Sport is only a microcosm of society. People are going to cheat in sport. We're always going to have to have anti-doping measures in place, and we're always going to have to try to stay one step ahead of those who cheat. For several decades now, elite athletes have been routinely tested for drugs, both inside and outside of competition time. Anti-doping organizations try to ensure that competitors haven't resorted to using any of the hundreds of different chemicals on the official banned list in pursuit of a sporting edge. Well, there's a huge number of compounds potentially on the banned list, but really they fall into a number of classes of those that we think are likely to be performance targets and have been historically. Chris Cooper is Emeritus Professor of Sports Science at the University of Essex. He's also the author of a book about the science of doping called Run, Swim, Throw, Cheat. The first is anabolic steroids, things like testosterone, the male sex hormone, they increase muscle mass, increase power in things like sprinting events in weightlifting. The second class is things that improve the amount of oxygen you can deliver in long distance events, things like blood transfusions, for example, or erythropoietin or EPO. Increase your number of red blood cells, increase your ability to run in long distance events, how fast you can run in long distance events. The third class is drugs that 
affect fatigue and prevent fatigue. Things like amphetamines would be the classic example, but there are any number of other stimulants on the market that have the potential to enable you to go through that pain barrier. Now, there's less likely to be performance enhancing, but there's certain areas of those drugs that are, are, are actively being expanded and could be performance enhancing. Finally, there are drugs that might potentially transform the body's biochemistry and enable you to use fat, for example, more efficiently, improve your ability to oxidize fat and therefore again affect long distance events where fat is very slow and very poorly metabolized. But in very long distance events, things like marathon running, um, long distance cycling, that might have a benefit. So those are the options. But when it comes to how effective these things are, how much of a boost they actually give to athletes, are there any good data on that? How well does doping actually work? Anabolic steroids, they increase power potentially by 10, anywhere from 10%, maybe a bit more in, in women. So if you gave it to a, a recreational club athlete, especially a female athlete, anabolic steroids, they could probably run 0.3 of a second, 0.4 of a second faster for 100 metres. That may not sound like much, but in a race that's over in under 10 seconds, it's huge. And those performance enhancements can be most dramatic in women's sport, particularly when it comes to anabolic steroids. These are close chemical cousins of testosterone, the chief male sex hormone, and the most famous demonstration of their power was from the late 1960s to the late 1980s, when communist East Germany was deliberately doping its athletes with them. It often gets referred historically as something which we're now aware of, which at the time we weren't, and we absolutely were aware of it at the time. Um, you couldn't be more aware of it. Sharon Davies is an Olympic silver medal winning British swimmer. She competed at the 1980 Games in Moscow against East German athletes. They were incredibly successful in the women's events. They would have athletes that would arrive that we'd never seen before on the international platform. They looked and sounded like men. They had five o'clock shadows and deep voices. And they did male performances. In, and they did not repeat that in the men's events. In fact, they had hardly any success in the men's events at all. So it was incredibly evident to anyone that bothered to properly look. And it got incredibly frustrating. And that happened nearly for 20 years. The first Olympics where it made a massive difference was probably 76, uh, all the way until the war came down post-88 Olympics. How much difference do you think the steroids made in the pool? We went to the Stasi and we were able to look at quite a lot of documentation and they were able to prove that they could make a minimum of a 9% improvement uh, as an average. So, you know, 9% for the particular lady that, that beat me would have put her 16 seconds behind me and wouldn't have even qualified her for the Olympic Games. So you can take a very average female athlete and turn them into a world champion, a world beater, a world record holder. And many of those world records stood for a long time. A 9% improvement can be the difference between winning an Olympic medal and not even qualifying. And that can be incredibly tempting for athletes whose whole lives are spent seeking Olympic gold. Testing methods have improved since the dark days of the 1980s, as you'll hear later in the show. And so doping is less obvious today. But could that mean it's just been driven even further underground? It's really difficult to know what the prevalence of doping is, so how common it is. Chris Cooper again. If you look at actual tests that people do for trying to test whether athletes dope or not, they're in the region of 1%, slightly less than 1% positive. Most people will think that's a rather low number. If you ask the athletes, of course, that's difficult because they'll say no, because if they say yes, they'll be banned. So there are various clever ways by which you can ask athletes whether they've taken performance enhancing drugs. With the athlete being sure, you can't tell and trace back to them. And those numbers really vary 
but they're anywhere from between 7% in some tests and some go up to 40 to 50% depending on the sport and who you're testing. Well, you can only hope that the prevalence issues will become more obvious. David Howman was previously Director General of the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA. Today, he chairs the Athletics Integrity Unit, which enforces anti-doping in track and field. There are many sports who say we don't have dopers at all in our sport and look at the results of our testing programmes. They reveal no positive cases. Now, you and I probably know that you can test a lot of people and get negative answers. Uh, I could walk down the high street and test 150 people and say, well, look, I've tested 150 people and they're all negative. Um, so you've got to conduct anti-doping programs with a lot more information and intelligence if you are going to detect those who are trying to beat the rules. Same way as the tax departments take very uh, serious routes to find out those who are tax avoiding. So you know, you've got to do this seriously, Tim, and, and if you don't do it seriously, you're not going to find out what the prevalence is. When doped athletes win, the effects can ripple through the entire sporting field. And when medal positions are so important, the impact on clean competitors can be devastating. Sharon Davies. There were British athletes that came forth behind three East Germans that no one has ever heard of, whose whole lives would have been different. It was unbelievably frustrating and... We're talking as if sport is something we do as a sort of a pastime, you know, and we just do on the side as a hobby. And actually, it's not. It's a profession. It's something which millions and millions of pounds are involved with and people earn huge amounts of money and livings from it. So, so no, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the tougher we can be and the more we can make people stick to the rules, the better. With the sheer number of athletes who may be doping and the range of different drugs they can use, the task of monitoring all this is not easy. Top flight sports people have to put up with an elaborate system of testing that invades their whole lives. Today, the World Anti-Doping Agency governs Olympic sport when it comes to drug testing rules. So it's the WADA, as they're called, prohibited lists that outlines the scope and scale of the substances that are prohibited. I'm Oliver Catlin. I'm the president of Banned Substances Control Group, BSEG for short. I've been working in and around the anti-doping field myself now for more than 17 years and had the good fortune to cut my teeth working at the UCLA Olympic Analytical Laboratory that my father formed in 1982 to do the drug testing for the 84 Olympic Games. It's actually the local anti-doping agencies like the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, UCAD, and others that are responsible for collecting samples from the athletes and then adjudicating the tests. But those anti-doping agencies are all subject to the World Anti-Doping Agency rules and regulations. Urine testing is the predominant method of drug testing these days still in sport. There's also a secondary collection of blood that usually comes as well that helps to monitor certain natural agents, blood levels, testosterone, things like that. But most of the drugs that we test for today, we test for in urine. And is the idea with that that if I take a drug, it does whatever it does in, in my body, at some point it gets sort of excreted and you're looking either for the drug itself or for the sort of the metabolites, the, the chemicals that, that it, it gets broken down into, you're, you're looking for the presence of those in that urine? 
Correct. Yes. You look for either the parent drug, if the parent drug comes out that way in the urine, but oftentimes uh, drugs metabolize into metabolites, as you pointed out, and the system targets the metabolites as opposed to the drug itself. So you're either looking for the parent substance or the metabolites in the urine to make a proper detection of a drug. And if there are hundreds of drugs that you're looking for, does that mean hundreds of different tests? It's a little bit different than that. There are a collection of methods that are usually used. There's usually maybe 10 actual tests that are done on samples to test for the full collection of 330 plus WADA prohibited substances. So for example, you might do a stimulant assay that targets the stimulant category and related drugs. Same thing for steroids. Uh, you would run a specific panel for those. And then it depends on how the chemistry works out in the other drugs that we target in the system as to whether you need a specific method to target those or whether those are included in other assays that you might run to target the other drugs. And why is it that blood is taken as well as urine? Blood's an important marker of a variety of things. You can look at testosterone levels in the blood to track steroid use, and it's more predominantly used to track blood levels. So blood doping can be an assistant in endurance sports. And to find things like blood doping, you collect blood samples, compare the blood levels in those samples to previous samples, and collect what's often called a passport. Uh, So you collect blood over time, you look at those levels over time, and you look for changes in those levels that may indicate that doping is present. And athletes have to take these kind of tests both in competitions and outside them. True. It's sometimes these days in competition, testing is referred to as an IQ test, since you know you're going to be tested and you know when you're going to be tested. Out of competition testing is incredibly valuable to the system. It's a surprise. There's no notice involved in out of competition testing. A collector literally shows up uh, at the athlete's door with less than an hour of notice uh, to collect the sample. So it gives very little opportunity to to maybe switch urine samples, to try to tamper with things. You can't really game a out-of-competition drug test if you don't know it's coming. But not 100% effective. I don't think anything is 100% effective, unfortunately, in anti-doping today. I wish it was. And we've seen several people sort of worry publicly that the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns and the travel bans and so on might have have got in the way of testing. Could you explain a bit more why people are worried about that? Well, I think the pandemic obviously shut down much of the world's ability to effectively collect samples from athletes. And obviously, without collecting a sample, you have nothing to test, you have nothing to, you know, use to try to detect doping. So I think you know, the pandemic decreased the overall volume of sport drug testing around the world for a period of time. And that, you know, that obviously hampers the ability for the system to find uh, and uncover dopers. However, the system, you know, the, the testing methodology that we use today has increased significantly in its overall sensitivity. And by that, I mean, we can find lower amounts of drugs uh, 
in urine today than we could a decade ago. The benefits of the drugs last much longer than the drugs themselves stay in your body. And this is why the random drug tests outside of competition time are so important. All this testing has made it harder to get away with the sort of blatant doping we saw in previous decades. One way to get a sense of the change is to look at world records. It was pretty obvious to anyone who looked at the world records in track and field that there were two quite distinct blocks by date. Ross Tucker is a sports scientist based in South Africa, and he co-hosts the Science of Sport podcast. There was a, a block for the power events where almost all the world records date back to the 1980s and early 90s. And then there was another block for the endurance events where all the world records seemed to happen in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then you look at this and you say, well, is this coincidental? Was there, was there some change in the human race that made better endurance athletes in the late 90s, 2000s, where we used to be power, explosive sprint athletes? And of course, that's not the case. The, the reality is that those records reflect the doping practices that were available to the athletes at the time. And when you then link those to the evolution of anti-doping, then it actually tells quite an elegant story because what happened was in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, the, the, the doping methods were predominantly steroids and there was really no out-of-competition testing for these drugs. So athletes could use them uh, at any time and in, in pretty much as large a dose as they wanted to. So, so, of course, what was happening was that the power events, the throwing, discus, shot put, javelin, hammer, and the sprint events, the 100, 200, 400, they, those records were being moved beyond the realms of human possibility or physiology by that era. And then in the late 1980s, I think it was 1987, they began to do out-of-competition testing. And so all of a sudden, where athletes before could get away with level X, they could now only get away with level Y, and Y was substantially lower. So all those performance capabilities were suddenly chipped away at and lowered. But of course, you don't need to turn in a world-beating performance to win a medal. You just need to beat your competition on the day. As testing has got better, doping hasn't gone away. It's just become subtler. You have to equate doping in sport with crime in society. There's never going to be an end to crime in society. It's the same thing. Michael Johnson is a four-time Olympic gold medal-winning sprinter. He speaks to Anne McElvoy on our sister podcast, Economist Asks, which comes out on Thursday. Sport is only a microcosm of society. People are going to cheat in sport. We're always going to have to have anti-doping measures in place, and we're always going to have to try to stay one step ahead of those who cheat. Up next, we ask what would happen if the rules were changed and doping was simply given a free pass in sport. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
For athletes, anti-doping methods can be intrusive and onerous, and often they don't work. One radical answer to this problem might be to remove restrictions entirely. Innovations in equipment, like springier shoes or lighter bikes, improve performance. So if physics is allowed into sport, why not chemistry? The problem then is you'd be watching a contest whose result is determined by appetite for risk. Sports scientist Ross Tucker. If there was no ceiling imposed on doping, and, and when we talk about a ceiling, we're talking about what kind of drugs, how much of them you use, and how often. So it's the classic combination of type, frequency, and volume, right? Uh, if there was no constraint on that, then then effectively whoever's willing to risk health the most is probably going to win. And that has all sorts of trickle-down effects because then a 15- or 16-year-old who's on the cusp of making it into the senior sporting world really has no choice but to go along with that because that level of doping would be so powerful for performance that no unaided physiology would even come close to matching it, which is what you see when you look in particular at some of the women's world records. Is It's taken technology 20 to 30 years to try and chip away at what steroids gave women 30, 40 years ago. You said that unrestricted doping might take away the choice, particularly of, of, of young sort of up-and-coming athletes, and you said it would also be you know, a contest to see who's got the, the highest risk tolerance, basically. I mean, how far do you think people might would go if we really did just remove all of the restrictions? Well, that depends on who you ask and how you ask. There's a very famous uh, experiment called Goldman's Dilemma. I'm not sure if you've heard of that, but basically... A question was posed to elite athletes. This was probably back in the 1970s or 80s where a, a, a physician, Robert Goldman, asked a bunch of athletes if, if they would take a drug that would guarantee them overwhelming success in sport but cause them to die after five years. And in his research, which confirmed something done before, about half said that they would. Now, <laughs> I'm not... I'm not entirely sure that that attitude is prevalent today and that athletes would in fact do that because I've seen a follow-up on the Goldman um, effects or dilemma which shows a much lower percentage. But the point is that even even if it's one in 20, that means, I mean, how many athletes will be in Tokyo? About 11,000, I think. So 5% of 11,000. You're still talking about five, 600 athletes who would die by the next Olympics just to win this gold medal in this one. Uh, there would be massive medical issues as yet unseen because anti-doping has kept a lid on them. But there's no doubt that if, if that lid was removed, athletes would dope to the point of potential harm. Regulators need to be able to test for drugs, even if only to protect the athletes themselves from the most damaging effects of high-stakes competition. That means it will always be a cat-and-mouse game. Oliver Catlin again. The sport drug testing system today is very good at finding the things that are on the prohibited list. So if you're if you're dabbling with something in and around the prohibited lists, you can expect problems. But it's it's some of the undefined elements of the lists that are perhaps a little bit more problematic. One major problem is the constant trickle of new drugs coming out of medical research. It's hard to say whether people are using things that are outside of the the scope and scale of the system. Uh, they almost assuredly are. And I think the question for, you know, people consuming the Olympics or any other sport today is, is what are those other substances 
how uh, impactful are they on performance and are they substances that we should be concerned about and, and targeting in the future. SARMs, for instance, selective androgen receptor modulators, are a new class of experimental drugs designed to treat muscle-wasting diseases. The idea is they offer similar benefits to anabolic steroids, but with fewer of the side effects. Tests exist for some of them, but by no means all. And there are even more exotic possibilities that might be even harder to test for. Chris Cooper again. There must be some unknown unknowns that I don't know about that could be performance enhancing. But things like, I guess people always ask about things like gene doping. So gene doping is when you actually give yourself more of a particular gene or less of a particular gene, and that will have a performance enhancing enhancing effect. So you inject into your muscle more of the protein that would increase your testosterone levels, for example, or you inject into your um, system more of your natural EPO that will give you more hemoglobin. And that's almost impossible to test for unless you take a DNA test from a muscle. With so many new ways to dodge the system, it's a wonder that anti-doping organisations aren't always two steps behind. One or two steps behind some of them. Uh, there are times when you're one or two steps ahead. David Howman of the Athletics Integrity Unit again. But one of the issues that you have to confront if you're engaged in the anti-doping movement is that your resources are limited. Uh, and so limited that, for example, WADA has an annual budget which is equivalent to a sort of second-tier Premier League player in the UK. Now, that just shows how much money sport is prepared to pay to block what might be uh, a blot on their copybook and a blot on their reputation. That's not enough. And, and so WADA needs more, and so do the various anti-doping agencies around the globe. And the minds and money behind elite athletes are very good at finding ways to cheat. Microdosing is obvious because you can uh, take substances shortly before you perform and they can be out of your system by the time you've completed your performance uh, and very hard to detect, therefore. So uh, there's that approach. There's the cocktail drug approach where people take a mixture of things, also in micro uh, doses, and uh, they, again, can't be detected. And you can be caught by making a mistake when you microdose. You can be caught when you think you're home free because you are not being tested out of competition and you haven't given your whereabouts information properly. Um, so there are, there are ways and means that uh, would tell me, if I were an athlete, um, not to take the risk. On the other hand, there will be those who say, well, the risk is worth taking. How likely are you to show a positive result? And people take those risks. They take those risks in all parts of our society. And instead of it being a sort of a 10% risk, it might be a 50% risk, and people will take that. Anti-doping is clearly much better than it once was, but still far from foolproof. With that in mind, I asked Ross Tucker how cynical spectators about to sit down and watch the Tokyo Olympics should be. <laughs> That's the existential meaning of life question in sport, unfortunately. Every single extraordinary performance has an asterisk or at least rather a question mark against it because there are too many patterns that repeat from year to year and from, from, from generation to generation. So the problem is until those patterns are broken, then there's no real basis for trust. So I can't tell listeners where they need to calibrate their, their skepticism slash cynicism. 
other than to say that if 10 means they're all dirty cheats and one means nobody's doping, I think five or six is probably where you have to be. If the cynicism meter is that high, then you have this cloud of suspicion that hangs over almost all professional sport. Sharon Davies knows what it's like to compete against dopers at the Games. I think always, you know, in the back of everyone's mind, there is always that question, particularly, I think, probably in the power events, in the sprint events on the track. You know, we look across the, the eight lanes and we wonder if there's anybody in there that's actually genuinely clean. And we can only, you know, go on what we're watching and enjoy what we're watching. And we can only really just keep on, hopefully, fighting the, the good fight. I put the same question to David Howman. So if I were watching the games, I remain uh, a cynical optimist. Uh, I like to question. Uh, I like to have my questions answered, uh, but I'm not negative about it. I would like to recognise uh, very good performance in sport in a way that it should be applauded. And I don't like saying, well, that was only because you were on the juice. So I start from that position, Tim, and of course, uh, the rest is up to the athletes and their advisors. There will, in other words, be two games taking place in Tokyo. The Olympics themselves, that everyone will settle down to watch, and the cat and mouse games going on behind the scenes, between ever more advanced anti-doping technologies and ever cleverer ways of trying to evade them. Thank you for listening to Babbage. You can read our full report on doping in sport, headlined Still Doped Up, in the science section of this week's Economist. And you can subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer for a special discounted rate. And while you're with us, please give us a competitive rating on your favourite podcast app. The producers are Rory Galloway, Abasoye Usandairo, and Nico Raufast is the sound engineer. The editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Tim Cross, and in London... This is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.